Hello and welcome to this Unorthodoxy podcast. It's really great that you're listening in and I'm really excited about the stuff I want to share with you in this podcast. This is in in some ways the kind of culmination of of a lot of things that I've been dealing with in mimetic theory in the last few episodes. So this is where I actually get into a bit of theology. Like what in the world has mimetic theory got to do with theology? So I've covered kind of the basics of of mimetic theory. I've started with this this root thing, which is that desire is borrowed. And I talk of, I've talked about how desire leads to a mimetic crisis or a sacrificial crisis when escalating rivalrous desires create this insatiable need in people to be at odds with each other, but also to escalate violence. And how this escalation of violence tends to culminate in scapegoating, where an individual or a small group of people, a minority group of people is picked on and and then scapegoated. So this then leads society to, to actually form. Culture forms around scapegoating practices or the, the reinstitution or the kind of copying of scapegoating practices through ritual. In fact, society uses two other structures in addition to ritual to sustain the, the myth of redemptive violence and those structures are myths so mythology is a story that people tell to be able to keep on scapegoating and to see that the mob is actually a good thing that they believe this and then there is um, taboo the law the law actually becomes something that sustains our tendency to scapegoat so people do really terrible things often in the name of the law and what I want to deal with here is demythologization which is a horrible word but it's it's just the the central idea here is René Girard who came up with mimetic theory realized that we know all of this stuff about mimesis and scapegoating and and the origins of culture because of a a very specific collection of texts which we call the bible so it's a whole range of texts it's complicated it's it's not just one book, it's a whole library of books. And the books are not necessarily always in total agreement with each other. But this doesn't mean that there's necessarily an overt contradiction between the texts. It just means that different people at different times had different ideas. There's also a general sense in which people are wrestling with this text. I think the Bible is a really unique book in that it contains self-critique. You you read voices kind of going against previous voices and later voices, then trying to figure out what this means. And what Rene Girard points out is that Christianity demystifies religion. Christianity is this thing that actually exposes the violent sacred. So the violent sacred is this tendency in people to always be picking on someone and then scapegoating them. But Christianity demystifies this. In fact, Gerard's contention is that without Christianity, and obviously it's it's Judaic prelude, demystification would not have happened the way that it has. What this means is that Christianity is an epistemology and a posture rather than just a belief. It is a posture against mimetic violence and scapegoating. People often talk about Christianity as you know, in, in just purely esoteric terms, it's faith, it's what you believe. And that 
that just can't be true. That That's not very helpful either. Like, if it doesn't transform the way you actually live and act in the world, then what is it for? So it's an epistemology. It changes the way that we know how to do things right. It changes our ethics. It changes how we know God. And it is a posture. It is a, an actual stance that we take against mimetic violence and scapegoating. So James G. Williams, who's a Gerardian scholar, in his forward to, to Gerard's book, I See Satan Fall Like Lightning, such a great title for a book, he, he writes this, uh, Williams writes this, the biblical tradition, and this is the tradition right from Genesis through to Revelation, punctures a universal delusion and reveals a truth never revealed before. The innocence not only of Jesus, but of all similar victims. So what Williams is getting to here is Jesus, in the, specifically in the gospel narratives, he is made a victim by the people around him, by his circumstances, and he is innocent. And in fact, all victims are innocent. Gerard writes that the Gospels present a theory of man, an anthropology, such that Christianity is essentially the cultural and moral acknowledgement of the sacrificial origins of our culture and society. This is quite a fresh way of reading the Gospels. We, we, we can look at theology just as ideas about God, but it's quite fascinating and fun even to be able to look at it and go, well, what does it tell us about us? In a way, you could read the Gospels from a completely secular, so-called secular perspective and still gain an enormous amount of understanding about how human beings function. And it's a specific kind of anthropology that the Gospels present that undermines dominant ideologies, especially ideologies that oppress and denigrate those in a, in a minority. What happens in in the ancient religions that, that Gerard talks about, the ancient sacred practices, is that there, there is a kind of false transcendence. What this false transcendence is, is a feeling of catharsis when a mob gathers around and kills a scapegoat, a victim, or some sort of, or, or targets their rage or their anger or all their issues against a minority group. They get a sense of catharsis, a feeling of, of relief that they have done the right thing. This is a false transcendence. But Gerard thinks that Christianity posits a real transcendence, a true transcendence, because it does not support the victimage mechanism. This transcendence is a genuine innocence. It is not siding against people. And at the center of this Christian epistemology is, of course, Jesus and an anthropology of the cross. But before I get to talking a bit about the cross and its significance for how we understand things, I want to just pre give a prelude, which is found in the form of, of the chapter of John John 8. I'm not going to read it, but you know the story. It's, it's really a bizarre scene. This woman has been caught in adultery and she's dragged out into the street and is about to be stoned to death for this apparently terrible crime. And of course, no mention is made of the man who was caught in adultery with her. We presume that it was less cool for people to pick on men in those days. Women had fewer rights and privileges then, and as they do in many countries still today. And in the scene that we read, 
we can be pretty certain that the people who are about to stone the woman caught in adultery are, are highly religious. The kind of people that wanted to do this were very devout. They, they saw a crime, some kind of a crime had been committed, a law had been broken, it was sinful, and they needed to keep the law. And what that meant was to get rid of the lawbreaker. And into the scene, there, there is Jesus. He's right in the middle of this, this chaos, and he addresses this mob of hyper-religious folks. And this is a really precarious thing to do. Can you imagine this guy who addresses this mob, and, and he's about to challenge what they're doing, and which in those days would have legitimately been a setup for Jesus. Well, it would have been Jesus setting himself up for some scapegoating. And more or less what he says is, well, that's fine. If you want to stone, that's okay. That's part of the law. But let's make sure we do this right. The one who has no sin should cast the first stone. I know I'm reading a lot into this and I just play with it. The idea is like he, he's kind of trying to say, well, I'm not going to contest your law. I'm not going to challenge that because challenging people about what they think is right or wrong never works. They always end up becoming much more rigid about what they believe and much more unyielding and unaccommodating in terms of what other views should be allowed. And Jesus says, in simple terms, the one who has no sin should cast the first stone. This is so ingenious because here we have a typical scapegoating situation and Jesus undoes the whole thing. By firstly forcing the individuals in the mob to do some introspection, which is not what they were about to do. They're, they're seeing sin is outside them. They're looking at this, this woman caught in adultery and they're saying, well, she's the problem. And here, by Jesus calling attention to their inner worlds and to their own sin, he singles them out as individuals who stand apart from the mob. He also, in the process, does a very clever and subversive thing. He actually tears the law, this ancient law, to shreds. He starts to call into play the spirit that should be at the, at the center of all law, which is how can we do what is right, not just how can we get rid of those who are in the wrong. And here Jesus clearly sides with the victim rather than with the mob. What people don't often notice, especially conservative Christians, is that Jesus is, has no hermeneutic precedent here in terms of how he interprets the Old Testament. There is no precedent for Jesus to do this. He, he is, in fact, breaking the law. And I know, I know that we can have endless theological arguments about this. And some people say, but Jesus came to fulfill the law, not to break it. I, I think he was breaking the law in, in a way. Like he was trying to say this, this whole process of stoning people is just nonsense. And, and from, by the way, you know, people who want to argue that that was, that was God's original idea in the Old Testament. Well, none of us think that that's okay today. And why is that? Well, I think it's because Jesus undid that legal practice. Put, put aside the fact that we're probably going to argue about this and just think about the fact that here is a very controversial figure in a very controversial scene and he handles it perfectly. I don't think there could have been a more perfect way of handling it. And what you have here is a clear example of scapegoating violence. There is many versus one, 
but Jesus will have none of it. What is exemplified in Jesus is a, is a historical turn away from scapegoating and away from even away from ritual practices that involve killing. This is what is known in theological terms as a great reversal. And this historical turn is rooted in a historical figure. So I know that there are tons of debates about the historical Jesus. And there are so many scholars and they all have different opinions about which texts we can absolutely trust in the New Testament and which shouldn't be trusted. But what we do see is an actual historical shift away from scapegoating violence. And one example, a very simple one, but a, a really brilliant one, is, is a scene in the book of Acts where we find Saul of Tarsus, later known as Paul, who is in part of a mob who are in a process of scapegoating Stephen. Stephen then becomes the first martyr. And you have the same sort of a scene that we see in John 8. You have a group of people focusing on an individual and they're, well, in John 8, you see they're about to stone the woman. In in the book of Acts, they do, in fact, stone Stephen. You should look at that text uh, in the book of Acts because you find Stephen saying some very, very interesting things around around the Jewish customs of the day and the fact that they'd somehow misread the law. And here Paul is part of this, but he is not yet a convert. Later on, he becomes a convert to Christianity and his whole practice, his whole way of living changes. So you find this very neatly packaged in Romans 3. Now that that's quite a contentious chapter in Romans because it's often used to legitimate what I think is a rather horrible atonement theory called penal substitutionary atonement. And when you look very closely, though, Paul is quoting scapegoating psalms. They are psalms that dwell on scapegoats and victims. And that is what Paul is referring to, to describe the sin that he had in, in him before his conversion. The sin was primarily that he would side with the mob against victims. The major point here is that for, for Paul, his conversion was a transformation of his epistemology. It, it was a discovery that God is known not through victimizing, but through siding with victims. So let's look at this really controversial figure named Jesus, this, this central figure in history who, who turned things around and started to get us to focus on the victim and to stop this nonsense of victimizing. We find obviously accounts about Jesus in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John and the synoptic Gospels have some differences and John has got you know different focuses but what we all know just from a historical perspective is that these texts were written within the first century AD which was certainly within living memory and in an oral culture, that is very significant because the texts would have been checkable. You could have tested whether they were in some way true or false, and they survived. Richard Barkham, the really wonderful biblical scholar, calls these eyewitness accounts. He says that they are, in a way, you could kind of think of a journalist going around and interviewing a bunch of people and then collecting their stories and and then presenting that in a in a final document 
And that's kind of what the gospel accounts are like. And and these gospel accounts are regarded even by secular scholars as historically reliable. Although some will sort of, because of their modernist biases, will say, well, the miracles probably weren't miracles, they were symbols. Um, other people will say, well, that that maybe that modern bias needs to also be checked. So his, they're historically accurate. And this does not mean that they're absolutely verbatim rec- records of what exactly happened, what, what Jesus said and what happened. They were more like, so let's look at this historical Jesus and the way that he was central to overturning this ancient tendency to group and gather around people and scapegoat them. By the way, I, I say it's an ancient tendency. It totally exists now, but but the, the texts that make us aware that of this problem are still the gospel texts. The gospel texts are, of course, the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they were all written in the first century AD, which means that they were written within living, living memory. In other words, people of the day would have been able to hear those accounts or hear them read or read them themselves, and they would have been able to say whether they were accurate or not. And the texts have stayed with us. People copied them, which which does, even for secular scholars, lend a huge amount of credibility to these texts as historical texts. What we see when we look at Jesus in context is we see that he was situated in a time of tremendous mimetic rivalry, specifically between Rome and Israel. Rome was the oppressor. They ruled, Rome obviously ruled over the then civilized world. And a little bit of history helps here. Julius Caesar was regarded as divine, which meant he was a god to the Romans. (laughs) Augustus Caesar was then his adopted son, and he was referred to as the son of divinity. He was the son of Julius Caesar, therefore a son of God in a sense. In those days, Rome was to be glorified above all things. For those of you who live in a particularly powerful nation, this may be hard to to uh, to conceive of, but it was all about the Roman dream. You know, white picket fence, two and a half kids, that kind of stuff. And you even get it, I mean, if you want to like get a, a, just a rough sketch of this, you should actually check out the Asterix comics or the, the movies. They're a pretty good reflection of the kind of Roman fervor around the nat- nation. And everything that was done within that nation was a focus on glorifying Rome. One of the practices in those days was gladiators fighting, which is a form of ritual. It's also rooted in sacrifice, sacrificial violence, and scapegoating was the foundation. By the way, Rome was, of course, a nation created out of a founding murder, Romulus killed Remus. This is why it's called Rome and not Reem. And Romulus killing Remus became part of Rome's mythology that violent murder, this violent murder, was what was required for the nation to survive. And this is why Rome, or at least part of the reason why Rome developed a motto, which was the Pax Romana, which is Latin for, well, peace of Rome. But it was also referred to as the pe- as peace through victory. 
In other words, which is exactly what happened, if you don't submit to Roman practices and Roman peace, you will be crucified. So it was a peace, but it was highly conditional. It was agree with Rome or you'll be crucified. This, by the way, is the same rhetoric that people use in, I think it's Charles Spurgeon's famous sermon, Turn or Burn. You should be on, if you're on our side, you're fine. You can go to heaven. But if you're not, well, then you go to hell. It's the same logic. It, there's no difference. Um, in that logic, God, the God that people believe in to, to endorse that sort of logic, that God is exactly like Rome. And what Rome had was an a, what is known as a retrospective eschatology. They were looking back from a golden age. And in a way, they were kind of considering how they'd arrived. They, they thought that they were at the pinnacle of their civilization. That was the one, one sort of major player in the time of Jesus. The other one was, of course, Israel, as I mentioned, and they were the oppressed. They were in captivity yet again, and they, had a, they nevertheless had a very strong sense of national identity. And they were being persecuted for this. So some of them joined the forces of Rome, people like tax collectors or Herod. The Herods, in fact, in the New Testament were siding with Rome, even though they were part of Israel. And they had a prospect of eschatology. They were looking forward from a decidedly ungolden age, and they were longing for freedom and justice and peace. And their prophets had had told them about a coming Messiah. And so they were very expectant. There was going to be a Messiah. And this is why there were numerous uprisings, the Maccabean revolutions, the rebellions, and all of them had failed. And every Messiah, many claimed to be Messiahs, by, by, by the way. I think there were about 12 in the day of Jesus who were running, you know, in the running for being Messiah. But they all ended up being killed, just as Jesus ended up being killed. Most of these messiahs, though, these messiahs in the running, fought with violence. In other words, they fought the violence of Rome with their own violence. That is just mimetic violence. It's copied violence. It's not anyone doing anything different. So here you have the, the scene that Jesus was born into and was living in was a scene of Rome and Israel in mimetic rivalry. So Jesus was born as an oppressed Jew with a revolutionary message. But his message was not revolutionary in the sense of being violent. It was revolutionary in the sense of completely overturning the way that culture worked. Jesus taught for approximately three years. And just to put that in perspective, that's about the same time that you take to get a BA degree. It's really short. And he never wrote anything down to our knowledge, or if he did, it's, it's lost to us. And no one before or since has had such an enormous effect on history. Bill O'Reilly and Mark and Duggard in their book, Killing Jesus, said that he is the most famous man in history. And that is true even from the most secular perspective. Jesus taught primarily through stories, images, and short aphorisms. So one of them is blessed are the poor in spirit. From a perspective of, of mimetic theory, blessed are the poor in spirit. Well, what Jesus is doing is he's singling out those who are not enviable, those who we cannot be in rivalry with. And he says, well, if you're one of these, that 
is where the kingdom of heaven is at. That's that's where God is on your side. He also said this crazy thing that we all struggle to do, which is love your enemies. What Jesus is doing in his teachings a lot of the time, and you can go into some detail here, but he's changing the direction of mimetic desire. He's changing the way we imitate. We no longer imitate our enemies and hate them with the same hatred that they have inflicted on us. We love them. We we don't just mirror what they're doing back. We actually undo it through our own slightly different approach. The primary focus of Jesus' teachings was on imitating God. And God is, if you want a weird name for God, you can refer to God as non-rivalry. Jesus focuses on imitating God, not Satan. Satan can be regarded as a symbol of rivalry. Um, I don't I don't think the devil was a real is a real person or you know, I think Satan is a symbol of non-being. It's it's an undoing of of whatever being is. And Jesus is forever situating himself outside of mimetic rivalry. So there's Rome and there's Israel. And Jesus is really just doing his own thing. He's not even that worried about that. Like most of what he says is actually, it's got kind of very serious political implications, but he's not directly taking a confrontational stance on those two nations. Although a lot of what he does is is a kind of um, alternative kingdom, obviously. And Gerard writes, what, what Jesus invites us to imitate is his own desire, the spirit that directs him toward the goal on which his intention is fixed. To resemble God the Father, God who is obviously non-rivalry and non-egotism, as much as possible. The invitation to imitate the desire of Jesus may seem paradoxical, for Jesus does not claim to possess a desire proper, a desire of his very own. Contrary to what we ourselves claim, He does not claim to be himself. He does not flatter himself that he obeys only his own desire. His goal is to become the perfect image of God. Therefore, he commits all his powers to imitating his father. In inviting us to imitate him, he invites us to imitate his own imitation. That's Gerard in in I See Satan Fall Like Lightning. So, Here we have a very provocative idea that Jesus never claims to have his own desire. He's always desiring according to God. He's always saying, well, what is non-rivalry like wanting of this situation? What what does God want of this situation? Can I do something that will not provoke the accusation of the Satan or the, the rivalrous relationships that the Satanic relies on? Um, and what you find is that that God himself seems to want to undo this violent sacred. Terry Eagleton has this wonderful essay titled, Was Jesus a Revolutionary? And he, he writes, Yahweh is not a religious God. You cannot make graven images of him because the only image of him is human flesh and blood. You can't even pronounce his name. Yahweh is not actually his name, but a kind of pseudonym. In the prophetic books of the the Bible, He tells the Jews that he hates their burnt offerings and that their incense stinks in his nostrils. What they are doing, what are they doing, he asks, about welcoming the immigrants, protecting the widows and orphans, and shielding the poor from the violence of the rich. This is astonishing. 
the prophets and you can check out the prophets. I mean, Hosea's famous one, which Jesus quotes, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. The prophets start to challenge this notion of sacrifice. They start to say, but God does not need your burnt offerings. God is okay. He's fine without them. It's as if, I mean, even the idea that the burnt offerings need to be offered to a God or to the gods would suggest that the gods are made deficient by the sin of people. And and the Hebrew prophets started to realize this. God can't be deficient. He's fine. We must in some way need these sacrifices and these offerings. Maybe we have relied on our own violence instead of figuring out a different way to live. Gerard also deals very provocatively with the Satan. The the Gospel of John says, this is Gerard writing, You are the son of Satan because you don't listen to my voice. There are two arch models, Satan and Christ. Freedom then is an act of conversion to the one or to the other. Otherwise, it's a total illusion. This is why Paul says we are in chains, but we are free. We are free because we can truly convert ourselves at any time. We can refuse to join mimetic rivalry. Because Jesus' aims are outside of conflict, outside of the satanic, in a way, outside of Rome and Israel and their bickering, and um, he is seen as a threat. It's the weirdest thing that he is seen as a threat by these powers. Because he's not taking up arms, he's not in conflict with them, he's not even inciting riots and violence, and yet they see him as a threat. His followers then had to make a choice. You can follow Jesus, or you can follow Caesar. In that, that would have been one way of putting it. Another way of putting it would have been to say, you can follow Jesus, or you can follow Mammon, or... You can follow Jesus or you can follow Satan. And it turns out that Caesar, Mammon, and Satan all tend to revolve around the same mimetic processes, which is a process of scapegoating. It's a process of ganging up against minorities and getting rid of them or belittling them or making sure that they do not get to have a say. Because Jesus is seen as a threat by these powers, he gets crucified. and. In the gospel accounts, we see that Rome and Israel unify over the selection of this scapegoat, Jesus. Caiaphas, who was part of the plot to kill Jesus, said, Don't you know that it's better for one man to die than for a whole nation to perish? Caiaphas knew, this is John 11 verse 50, he knew that if you get rid of this central figure, if you scapegoat him, the whole of Israel will be safe. The mob that wanted Jesus to be their Messiah actually ends up chanting for him to be killed. The mob joins the mimetic struggle of their leaders. And this is why Terry Terry Eagleton writes in his essay, Was Jesus a Revolutionary? Real messiahs don't get themselves crucified. The idea of a crucified messiah would have struck the Jews of the time as an unspeakable moral obscenity. Instead, Jesus appears to go out of his way to undercut the ardent expectations of his followers. While some of them are probably anticipating a victorious march on the Jewish capital, Jesus enters Jerusalem on the back of a donkey in a deliberately satirical, deflationary, carnivalesque gesture. He is a sick joke of a messiah, one whose actions constitute a satirical commentary on the nature of political power as such. 
The power he himself represents is the only authentic and enduring one, the strength which springs from solidarity with breakdown and failure, from a compact with the non-being and self-dispossession, which is the anawim, the poor, the vulnerable, the marginalized. When you look at history, you find that there are very few representations of the cross from the 1st and 2nd centuries AD because it was gruesome. So people knew, people actually saw people getting crucified and it was, it was really, really gruesome. But it was also in many ways embarrassing. The dominant symbol of Christianity in those early days was actually the ichthus. Ichthus meaning Jesus Christos Theohuios Soter, which is... It's an acrostic. Uh, it means Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. So that was the symbol of Christianity. In fact, we, we have a, an example of a graffito from Palestine, uh, which is dated to around 200 AD, which has got a picture of a, a man with a donkey's head on a cross, the, this man on a cross. And it, and it says... I'm going to give you the English translation, not the Greek. It says Alexa Menos worships his God or Alexa Menos worshiping a God, depending on your translation. The earliest depiction of, of the cross, maybe they think it's a, a cross, is somewhere dated around uh, 79 AD. It's the Herculaneum cross. It's, it's entombed in a pyroclastic material along with Pompeii. At no point in the story of the death of Jesus in the Gospels is God pictured as being like the archaic gods of pagan religion. He is not wrathful, he is not vengeful, and he definitely does not need to be appeased by somebody's death. Mark Heim, in his wonderful book, Saved from Sacrifice, writes that the death of Jesus doesn't look anything like a ritual sacrifice. It is a public execution, not an offering on an altar. It is deplorable, I think, that we have in Christian history found ways to turn it into that. Turn it back into a pagan ritual where a god needs to be appeased by the death of a man. It's a completely secularized action. It's very clear that even the Jewish authorities who organize the death of Christ are doing so at in a Roman legal setting. They want the Roman authorities to to kill Jesus because it's not it doesn't even conform to their laws and it happens it happens outside the temple and it happens outside the city the short version Jesus doesn't die to appease God but because people this mob the, the crowd the so-called angry gods want to be appeased the gods who are angry it's not God but people Jesus, though, unlike previous scapegoats, is very clearly innocent. And that is very unlike any kind of mythology. In the mythologies that support scapegoating, the scapegoats are guilty. They deserved to die. But here we have a story that tells you about the death of Jesus, and he is innocent. And even the Roman authority, Pontius Pilate, who agrees to let Jesus be killed, even he goes... This man looks innocent by all accounts. So in the process, Jesus' death exposes the scapegoating mechanism. Jesus' death, in a way, exposes the magic trick of archaic religion and culture. 
This brings us to this word sacrifice. So the, the cross of Christ is often referred to as a sacrifice. And unfortunately, penal substitutionary atonement has made it very easy to believe that the sacrifice is to God. I want to point out that sacrifice today doesn't even carry that meaning. So it's very weird that we even look at it this way. There is a negative meaning to sacrifice and then there is a positive meaning and they're opposite meanings. The negative meaning is that sacrifice is an offering to appease angry gods. This is religious sacrifice. Then the positive meaning is it's a giving of self against the mimetic violence of the crowd or just a giving of self to an extreme. So we think of a mother who sacrifices her body to give birth to a child. There is a sacrifice there, but it's not a ritual killing. The two may look the same. These two meanings may look the same and they may even occur at the same time. But the second meaning arises only when we side with the victim. Christianity then is not formed on the basis of a unifying mechanism, but on a new basis. Everyone sides with Christ who was victimized and of course then raised from the dead. Christianity in this respect is actually a kind of anti-religion. It's really, really subversive. The early Christians referred to it as a way, the way in fact, because it deconstructed power struggles. It voted for non-power over power every single time. One example of this is, is in Acts 11 where the Christians were described as a diverse people. They had nothing in common, race, creed, you name it. They they were not they were not unified by a set of belief agreements or agreements of belief. They were unified by their allegiance to the crucified Christ. The death of Christ is then a in a way a solidification of the teachings of Jesus. It it represents the great reversal. The last will be first. The victimized will be raised up. Those who give up their identities will find their true identities. And Jesus' death and resurrection set this great reversal into motion as a kind of historical event. The reality is when you just look at history and when you look at people who are taking history seriously, history changes. History is never going to be the same. And that is where I want to leave you. I know I've covered a huge amount of ground and probably a little too quickly, but I hope that it gives you some insight into what the significance of the Christian perspective is, especially from a, the perspective of mimetic theory. I really would encourage you, if you if you want to look at atonement theory uh, from this perspective, definitely check out S. Mark Heim's book, Saved from Sacrifice. I, I mentioned it earlier. Heim's book is a really important book because of how it, it challenges our current atonement theories and also opens up a way to see mimetic theory as a, as a very helpful theological resource. And that is it from me for this podcast. Thank you so much again for joining me. I'd love to hear your comments. If you have any uh, or questions, please post them at, at the Unorthodoxy podcast Facebook page, or you can send me a tweet at Duncan Rayburn. Take care, everyone.